Had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome to today's show. I couldn't be more excited to welcome Angel Howard, the owner of Necessary Change Consulting. As we are beginning June 2021, a time a week ago acknowledging the murder of George Floyd, a time of racial reckoning, especially last summer and protests, Black Lives Matter organizations saying we're going to become anti-racist organizations. And today we'll be talking about how far some organizations have come, how far they need to go and strategies, because I'm finding some backlash, some backsliding and some, oh, we really never said that. Um, and what I'm particularly excited about it, uh, the term glass cliff. And there's going to be several other things we talk about, but I think you were the first person on one of the community connections that I heard that from. And so I can't wait to have you all meet Angel Howard, also the Associate Director of Professional Development and Staff Recognition, Illinois State University. And so internally, you do systemic change work around equity, inclusion, racial justice, supporting the success of minoritized students, staff, as well as my guess is you get asked and you say yes all over Illinois State. And I love Illinois State because it was what, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. one of your colleagues, a couple of your colleagues said, let's create something. And we created the Inclusion Partner Program, mm-hmm. which has probably morphed since I was there. And so that's when I first met you and just so excited to welcome you, Angel Howard, to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I I definitely love your work and um, love working with you every chance I get. Well, I can't wait to have the universe give us time to get to do consulting and training together so I can keep learning from you for today. Could you just help listeners know a bit more about you and how you're doing and and maybe how your early life experiences or other life have fed into this core life work and passion to dismantle racism, other forms of oppression to create true liberation for folks? So for me, I think, um, you know, growing up period, it was just an interesting, um, interesting life. Um, I am an adopted uh, person. I was adopted by a family member. Um, And so growing up, uh, I kind of experienced some well, I definitely experienced racism, but I also dealt with a lot of colorism. Um, my mother is a beautiful chocolate woman. And, you know, people looked at me as if I didn't belong, as if I wasn't supposed to be her child or if, you know, I couldn't possibly be black. So those are kind of things that I dealt with growing up. And then I also went to, um, I always went to predominantly white schools that were typically upper class, but 
I was an upper class, like as far as financially. Um, and so trying to fit into those spaces that just weren't for me. Um, and so that was always very challenging. But, you know, growing up, I never, ever thought that I would be doing diversity, equity and inclusion work. Um, I knew my experiences. I knew how I felt. Um, but it was not something that I thought. I always thought I wanted to be a social worker. I wanted to be a family counselor. That was where my um, trajectory was going. Um, but it wasn't until uh, I started going to college. I was a non-traditional student. Um, I didn't go to school till I was 28 uh, with a, a kid and a husband and all that good stuff. And um, I myself didn't really know that college was in my, my preview. Like, I didn't know that it was something for me. I had a full understanding that college was for rich people, that it was for folks that, um, you know, had the capacity to do that. And so I didn't know that was me. Uh, but it wasn't until I had my daughter that I was just like, you know, I want her to experience college and how can I push that on her when I wasn't willing to give it a try myself. Little did I know I would still be a student today, <laughs> finishing my um, final degree. But, you know, I think that's where a lot of things changed for me. It's where I really, really started to learn um, how to critically think things out and also understand systems and organizations and just how they run. And um, during my master's program, I have a master's in social work, but during that program is when I think things really, really started to hit ahead for me. And at that time, I was in the middle of, of almost pretty much becoming a professional, but also a professional in higher ed, but also still a student. And so I had some terrible experiences as a student. And I was constantly trying to figure out, was it because I was black? Was it because I was a woman? Was it because I was older? Was it because I was a big girl? Like whichever one they, I didn't know which one they was picking on. So it kind of felt like um, a lot of things were being thrown in my direction. And so I remember leaving a class one day completely in tears, like completely hurt from um, an experience that I had hoped a professor would have realized was harmful. And so when I went, um, I had a, a supervisor at the time, his name was Josh Reed. He's, I believe he's Dr. Dr. Josh Reed now, but he, you know, he listened to my cries. He listened to my frustration and he was just like, well, Angel, if it frustrates you that much, do something about it. And that was kind of like my open door permission to telling me, you know, hey, you actually can do something about this, you know? And I don't think I really realized that. I knew I had a voice in so many ways, but I didn't quite realize in that space. And so that's what I did. And um, he opened up kind of a door for me to do like a, a little volunteer session that students could come to for 50 minutes. Um, and I had it, you know, I focused on like cultural competence, but my main goal was to deal with race because that was the one thing I didn't feel like we were talking about on my, in my, at my institution at that time. And of course you can imagine how many people volunteered to come, right? Yeah. And so it wasn't until a, a education um, professor uh, assigned her whole class to come. And that day is probably when everything changed. And so the education department started asking me to come and work with their soon to be teachers uh, constantly. And then I started getting known around campus, just doing the work. And um, and then eventually people outside of the campus started asking me to come and work with them. And so that's when I knew I had something like it was something that I, I was I feel I'm very gifted in and I feel like I'm called to do. And so that's kind of like, you know, 
where everything bubbled uh, down for me. But I was I worked in TRIO Student Support Services. That's uh, during my master's, I got hired full time to do that. And so I was working with a lot of students who were sitting in my chair telling me their experiences. And it was the experiences that I had also. And, you know, and that's not, you know, that's not to say, like, I think a lot of predominantly white institutions have these same things going for them when it comes to students of color and students from different um, backgrounds and identities. And so I really wanted to influence that, not just for me, but I wanted them to have a better experience. And I wanted them to know that this is their space and they have a right to have a voice and they have a right to fight for what's right and what's wrong and against what's wrong. And so that's kind of where my passion really, 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 really came from. (laughs) I'm just loving your story and your passion as I hear you and learn more about you. You really have such intersecting identities that represent so many of the current students at all these predominantly white campuses, four and two year and four year schools seem to think, oh, we'll just get more middle and upper middle class white kids that are able bodied, right? And since George Floyd's murder, I've been paying attention more and learning more and realizing I still believe that institutions were really trying to help everybody. And we're not just created for people in privileged identities. And that, and if listeners might still resist that, but it was a, you know, an earthquake, kind of whatever those are called, shift to really hear, particularly Black folks say, oh no, institutions are working just like they were set up, mm-hmm. whether it's higher ed, K-12, criminal justice system, they are working just as they were intended. Mm-hmm since George Floyd's murder and last summer and the protests and continuing efforts, what are some of the opportunities and challenges that you are seeing where you are and all your consulting Mm -hmm. that could, if leaders really lean in, really advance, accelerate the racial justice, social justice, and if that language isn't working in those organizations, greater inclusion. But I think more particularly white leaders said, I had no idea. Yeah, especially since the insurrection on January 6th, which many people are trying to say really was just a regular nice gathering, right? A party. Mm -mm. (laughs) So in this resurgence of um, resistance, white supremacist, domestic terrorism, folks really saying that doesn't exist. What are you finding the opportunities and challenges, particularly inside organizations today? So um, I will say that, you know, I've kind of had some some great moments of just Um, feeling inspired and seeing that people really have some great efforts and really want to do better. And then I've also, on the other hand, had some very drastic disappointments in some spaces that I've been in. And I think it's mainly because, um, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And the work that it takes to learn what we don't know, it, it is hard. It's hard and it takes Um, stripping down things that you have believed for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And to believe one thing means that you got to go back in time where you found that thought or gained that thought and start stripping, you know, stripping all the things that you may have done or not done within those years between. And so I think that's the really hard part because we have a lot of people who are picking up books, who, you know, picking up certain books and they read it and then they're like, oh, (laughs) I'm diversity, equity, inclusion, superhero now. And so I get folks like that sitting in some of my trainings who think they can educate me. And don't get me wrong. I am a person that loves to learn. If you got something, give it to me. But if you came for something, you need to sit down and get it. And so that's a huge challenge that I'm having within a lot of places. 
Now, some other things is everyone is, you know, adding diversity positions, they're adding diversity committees, and they're doing stuff like that. Um, but they add those things and then call me. And I think that we need to call some help and get some folks in before doing that because we're not thinking it out very much. You know, we're taking volunteer folks that want to be on these committees. Um, we're divvying it up by by departments. Okay, give me two from here, two from here, two from here. And if you're really trying to do some good diversity, equity, inclusion work, some, some true anti-racism work in your institutional organization, you can't just pick people. You can't pick people to raise their hand. Now, I, you do want people willing to do the work, but they need to be capable of doing the work as well. And so I find that a lot of these spaces I come into, they have these made diversity committees, but these are not people that have ever even thought about this work. And they don't do the training. They don't have them learn the thing, the skills that they need, which is hard to do when you need to immediately start doing some work. And so then you're you're left with with just this committee. And so um, I don't know how I've fallen into that, but that's become one of my specialties is helping organizations build these committees and um, staff these committees, but also learn how to care for these committees because we get these folks that we ask them to volunteer their time, which then, you know, they're still working their position, but this is additional work that they're doing with no additional pay. We don't give them any leadership titles. We don't give them any power, but yet, hey, how about you fix our diversity, equity, and inclusion problems? And I think that's the biggest mistake that I've seen um, within a lot of places that I've been asked to work. Now, I've, again, I've also had some places that I've been working, that I'm still working with that are kicking butt, like they are not playing any games. And they are seriously interested in getting into those really dirty, deep, dark closets that nobody's looked in for, you know, 50 years. And I think that is the beauty to me. Like, that's beautiful. But on the opposite side of that, they don't want to get in that closet. They just want me to clean a few cobwebs and then get on with my way. And that's hard. That's hard because, again, the foundation that a lot of these institutions and organizations were built on, which is white supremacy, which is whiteness, and we know that. And if that's the foundation, then if we're never getting to that foundation, we can't change anything. Nothing's going to change. It will flow. It will come right through the little layers of flowers that were laying on top of it. And so I think I answered your question, but that definitely is what it made me think of is just those feelings of um, being called just to be called, but not really being called to do the work that's necessary. I'm uh, at 64. I'm no longer to just be a part of check in the box of anti-bias train. It's like, no, I want to do systemic change. Training can be part of it. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to go both avenues you did. Can you, let's say I'm the leader that says, I just created this diversity committee, or I want to create one. What kind of questions would you ask me or what do you want your listeners our listeners thinking about so what are the pre-steps and then once you have folk um and what kind of competencies because i know 12 years ago inclusion partners we just didn't pick people we had some competencies mm -hmm. we wanted we had the managers help volunteer people as well as people could volunteer themselves so that's mm -hmm. similar to so and then i'd love the second part, and I can prompt again, a couple organizations, again, we won't name them, but that are like, oh, no, we want to open the closets. We want to get into the basement, the foundation of white supremacy that fuels day to day. How do we shift that, raise awareness, but really shift it? So that's where I'd love to go. 
Okay, give me the first one again, because sorry, I got so um, I started thinking of my answer for the second one that quick. <laughs> go for it. Do you want to go there first? And well, I I'll say that the the organizations that are really really showing me that they are playing no games, those are the ones that are actually letting me get to their leadership. Um, a lot of times they only bring me in to work with their diversity teams and then the staff. But if you don't have, if I mean, if leadership are not being trained or even being taught how to support the diversity members that are going to be coming from their areas, then it, you know, it doesn't work that way because I can send, I can send a staff member to do something, but if the leadership is not interested in that or does not want to see that change happen, then it stops. And so um, that's been the biggest part is, is that, is letting me get into all of the pieces and making sure that training has happened simultaneously with everyone. Um, and I also truly believe that leadership needs to be in those all staff trainings. A lot of times people will say, okay, I want you to meet with my staff, but I'm not going to be there. Mm -mm. They need to see you there and you don't need to be sitting at a table in the front. You need to be sitting right along with them, having conversations with them, because we have to see our leadership as humans. We have to see them as people who also are trying to learn and get better at the things that they're doing. And unfortunately, when people climb the ladder, they are not always climbing the ladder. Um, they're not actually climbing the ladder and becoming more competent sometimes. Sometimes you climb that ladder and you've actually learned the system. You've actually learned what you can and can't do. And so you've learned to just play the game. And I think that that's a, that's a big problem if our leadership is just playing the game. And I get that there are more responsibilities when it comes to protecting an institution and protecting, you know, like we have to, we have, to have money. We have to have the things that keep the institution going. So I do get that. And I know it's a sticky place and a tricky place. But it doesn't mean that you have to just play the game. If you know that policies are harmful, let's do something about it. You know, if you know that there's a closet that hasn't been looked at, let's do something about it. I can't tell you the, the, the times that I've been told, well, that's just how they are. You know, someone has done me wrong or someone has hurt me. And well, that's just how they are from leadership. No, no, no. Or the leader is who they're telling me. That's just how they are. And you can never, ever really create change if the top layer is the one that's causing most of the problems. And so those companies and, and institutions that have brought me in, because I, I work within higher ed, K-12, and I work within um, corporations. And so those that bring me in, they're really ready to let me get to even the leaders. And so that I love that. Um, and then also, okay, so back to the first one. I remember it now. <clears throat> and just to say, uh, we call it inclusion change team now at ISU. That's what we call the team that you um, helped <laughs> to create. And so, and they're, they're amazing. I, I consistently have some amazing folks on that team that help with a lot of stuff that, um, that is making big moves on our campus. But I think um, the biggest part about these, the biggest part about these committees I think is that, you know, sometimes they don't feel um, appreciated. Sometimes they don't feel like they are, um, they don't have the confidence to actually go into these spaces and say the things that need to be said and question the things that need to be questioned. Sometimes they're created, but with the muzzle. And that's a problem. Like if you bring me in, but I, but but as soon as I get too deep in something, you you smack in my hand or pat me on my head, telling me to settle down. Like what what are we really there for? And so I think a lot of folks who get brought into these things, um, they feel that way, you know. And so I think that's something that we really really have to address when it comes to working with folks. Now I know I didn't answer your first question. Remind me what it is now. 
Well, what I love is you're reminding uh, leaders, listeners, that before they start these change teams, be really clear what's their role and do that collaboratively based on data. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just check the box, but are they a recommending group? Are we going to partner with them? Are we going to meet three, four times a year to have collaborative? We're going to do collective training so that we build relationships and competencies together. Mm -hmm. And so there are ways to do all you're doing as well as have it be organizational change and to negotiate what's our vision of an anti-racist inclusive organizations together. Yes. The other thing I wanna float by you, I've started using competencies. I might've even shared my list, kind of 10. I think I'm at 11 now. And having leaders before they form these teams or, or as they are wanting to reimagine them, what are the competencies that we wanna train people to, hold them mm-hmm. accountable to, And that includes we leaders no longer saying, oh, that's how they are, or that's how we've always done things. So what are some of the competencies you want leaders, change teams to have, all managers, as we are moving into our second year of racial reckoning, social justice in all organizations? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I would start with humility. You know, um, I do use the term cultural competence, which some people don't really like the word competence, but I don't look at it as a word of, of final knowledge. I look at it as a, a, the final knowledge of understanding that you will never know it all. And so to me, cultural competence and cultural humility have to be together. And that humility is doing some self-reflection and doing some self-work and really being able to question where your beliefs and your own thoughts have come from. And we need to make sure that the people that we're hiring has that capability. And I don't even think we ask questions about that. Like we, we say, what's your view on diversity, equity, inclusion? Well, I think everybody's great, you know? And, and like that is not, you know, that's a problem. And imagine, just imagine if the leaders that we hire, we made sure they had these competencies before we hired them. How beautiful would that be, right? But we don't do that, unfortunately. And so I think the main thing is you always being willing to be a learner and you always reevaluating and checking yourself. And you also willing to um, set up training and things for the leadership team just as much as you're setting up for a staff, you know, um, or folks that's not within those, those areas. So I do think that's very important. I do think that they need to be critical thinkers. And I do, I just want them to be human. I want them to be human and I want them to be willing to say, I don't know that, but I need to know that. And if we could start there, like we would see some big changes immediately. And so be able to engage, listen deeply, notice if they go under fragility, defensiveness. Oh yeah, um, yeah and really look at the racialized socialization and how we were taught whiteness. And Mm -hmm. then the skills for me, I want to check this, recognizing and responding to racist microaggressions. Yes. And then policies and practices that, as you mentioned earlier, still might be perpetuating white supremacy culture that might be privileging whites. How far can folks go before you start getting leaders resisting? What are you noticing? resistance from the first training that we're going to try to do or there's actually resistance before I even come because they're going to say hey we're about to start this process and so change is so hard for people Um, and I think that is that is you know that's probably one of the biggest skills that we need is to be able to change and understand where we need change at and so I think resistance starts with just that and I don't always think that resistance resistance is connected to racism or discrimination 
I just don't want to change. I don't want you coming in here telling me what I can and can't do. And so I think that's a huge um, thing that we have to kind of put our guard down. I don't really like change either. I'm not going to lie. Like as a human being, I don't like you come tell me that something's about to change. I'm like, why? Why are we doing this? And so I think um, I think as a consultant, that's something that I'm very gifted in is really talking to people about the why. And I'm okay with the why. Like, I think that's okay for you to have questions as long as you're willing to listen to my answers and be okay with them. Um, but a lot of times we, we bring people in to commit change, but we don't include the people that's been on the campus already trying to change it. And, and we don't even ask them to be on a diversity committee, to be honest, like the folks who've been doing the really hard work, we don't include them in this process. And those are the people I seek out first. Like who, who, who has been here? Who has been the voice? Let me have a conversation with them so that they can give me the information that I really need. This, I heard a person caller say nothing about us without us. And this last week I've been saying it more and more just to keep reminding me of all you're saying. As we go to break, we're going to come back and look more about the structures that will accelerate because individual training can only go so far. Can you help people know how they can find you? Yes. Um, you want me to do that now? Yes, please. Okay. So on, um, actually, if you look up Necessary Change Consulting, you'll find me everywhere on Facebook, on Instagram, um, on my website. And then I'm also on Twitter, but it is um, angel underscore NC, NCC. O-N-S-L-T. So, you know, I, they couldn't give me my whole name on that one, but you can find me there. Um, I'm very easy. Just Google me. <laughs> Can't wait to come back with Angel Howard, soon to be doctor. Maybe you want to talk about your research as we come back. Ooh. Really looking at systemic organizational change, the glass cliff. We'll do a few more. Can't wait to come back. Thank you so much. We are Radio Center for Transformation and Change. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Patricia McNair, host of Divine Guidance with Patricia, and I'm here to help you live a more authentic, spiritually connected life. Join me every first and third Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Being who you are in everyday life is the key to unlocking soul wisdom within that our whole self already knows. Get ready to embrace your spiritual, mental, and emotional well-being, your whole being. Discover your gifts and strengthen your connection to spirit. We will explore earth guidance, divine truth, and love, past life lessons, and so much more. So listen in to Divine Guidance with Patricia and join in your personal adventure to triggering, opening, validating, and being all that you are. For more information about me, visit divineguidance.earth. Stuck in a roundabout of dysfunction? Stop circling around difficult issues and find out what's been holding you back. Learn how to speak your truth to power with host Dr. Kathy Ober. Create real change with smart tools and smart strategies. No frills, no fluff, just life-changing conversations to help get you where you want to be. Extend your reach and become an agent for real change with Kathy Ober. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com. It's time to get your life back on Burn Bright Today with Jennifer Marcinelli. Tune in each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to move from the darkness of burning out to the light of burning bright. Jennifer is redefining stress and the energetic causes of burnout, shining a light on process to get your life back. 
For more information about Jennifer and her work, visit burnbrighttoday.com. Transition, simultaneously the most difficult and vital part of the human experience. Without change, how would we grow? Tune in to Grounding Into Your Radiance with Stacy Barber every second and fourth Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Step into your truth and allow the light into your life. For more information about Stacy and her services, visit StacyBarber.com. That's Stacy S-T-A-C-I-E, Barber.com. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Steffen each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. Healing has a ripple effect. One person's healing affects everyone around them. This is where the power of sharing our stories can be so important. Tune in to Playing on the Edge Radio with Megan Edge each month on Transformation Talk Radio as Megan provides you with ways of sustaining radical and powerful changes in your life. Enact the power of radical change. To find out more about Megan Edge, visit her website at meganedge.ca. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear, Transformation Change Radio, having some great conversation, learning with soon-to-be Dr. Angel Howard, owner of Necessary Change Consulting and the Associate Director of Professional Development, Illinois State University for Equity, Inclusion, Social Justice. Thank you so much. We left off beginning to talk about resistance, and I have found after three decades of individual awareness, skill building, self-work even, white accountability groups or really dismantling racism, that unless we have structures, competencies, accountability, this is where we're moving and then structures to move there, Mm -hmm. changing the policies, practices, we go back to the old ways as soon as leaders think, another crisis or I'm done, we've done enough. So would you talk a bit more about, as you do your consulting inside and outside organizations, how are you helping leaders think about ways to accelerate individual development, but then hold them accountable? Mm-hmm. So um, I work through, like, I think evaluation is a huge piece to um, accountability um, and only good evaluation, you know, and, and before my current supervisor, I never quite knew what great evaluation was. When I tell you by the time you get done being with your end of year evaluation with my current supervisor, like you, you feel good. Even if there were some things on there that she said you need to work on, like she has given you complete language and understanding of what, where she is holding you accountable. And so once I experienced that with her from the, the terrible evaluation experiences previously, like I learned that that there's a lot of power in that. And so a lot of folks are um, motivated by outcomes, you know, so they're motivated by that and they're motivated by what is this going to say about me at the end of the year. But most evaluations don't even consider DEI. Like they don't even think about it. They really think about the work itself that you're doing and not the pieces that influence that. So, and I think that that goes along with faculty. It goes along with staff. It goes along with CEOs. Like there's nothing in there that makes them have to answer the question, what have you done? One, to better yourself, to reflect on yourself, and then to also strengthen your team to make sure 
that this is um, something that, you know, you're doing your work through uh, a DEI or anti-racist lens. And so I love helping people look at that stuff within their organizations. Like, how are you evaluating this? How are you going to even make sure that leadership is making sure that their staff is doing this? And then also evaluating leadership on how they're helping them do this. And so that's one of the big places that I start with them. Um, and then I also just kind of review their mission statements, their vision. Um, you know, like we, a lot of visions and mission statements say we want to do great with diversity, but diversity only means difference. You know, it really means nothing unless you are putting some meat and putting some value to that. And so I really try to help them to improve that. And, and then explain to me what it means once they've written it. Now tell me, how, how do you think this looks? You know, what does this look like? What does it show? What does it look like if it's successful, right? And so I, I get them to talk to me about that type of stuff. And, um, and so I love, I love piling through papers and piling through websites and things like that. So not just working with the individuals. I love looking at how they are viewed by everyone. And are you actually doing the stuff that you say you're going to do? And if you're not, then you need to change it. Or you need to, you know, do the work to make sure that it is happening. And so each organization is different with me. Like, um, I do not go into these places with, with a true checklist. I have my order of things that I like to do. But I first love to meet with the people that are asking for the change. I want you to tell me what's the problem. Like, don't tell me what you're doing well. What are the problems? Because if you bring me here just because it's the thing to do right now, then you, you have no clue what's going on or what we're about to do. And so I, I can tell their seriousness or, or how um, invested they are by the, the data that they bring to me and the work that they've already thought about and the, the holes that they've already kind of dug into. Those folks that come to me with all that stuff, I'm like, okay, all right, you ready to do something. But the people that just come to me like, um, you know, we, you know, right now it's a diversity thing. We need to do some stuff. Can you do some training? Um, and, you know, and, and just that kind of flowery, uh, low hanging fruit stuff, then I already know what I gotta kind of have to do to try to push them more. Um, I don't give up on them, but I do ask more probing questions to try to say, hey, what is it that you really got me here to do? Like, what is it that you really want? Now, if you just want training, then I'm not saying I'm, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna do it, but don't bring me in with the premise of consulting when you really just want training. You really just want to say that you've done these things to top your end of year um, statements off. But um, but yeah, a lot. most people have let me push them though. So I appreciate that. Well, I love the collaborative cross-organization, looking at the data, all voices in to say, where are we? Where do we wanna be? Well, I love this, what will success look like? And you talked earlier about the why. So mm -hmm. what's, what's our leadership case, business case? Why do we need to be doing this? And then what if some individuals don't get on board? Mm -hmm. And negotiating that early. And that's the part where leaders and supervisors, I find, don't have the skills to hold people accountable. It's one thing to do mid-year, end-of-the-year evaluations. But that day-to-day -day yeah. coaching accountability is such how do you give feedback, especially across differences, yeah. fear of conflict? Mm -hmm. um, they're a good producer. They bring in money. Yeah, they sexually harass, but, you know, and so. Um, you know, I have a funny, a funny little uh, situation to just share with you because you just said that. But um, I had interviewed for a job. It was like a diversity position. Um, and, and I've interviewed for a couple just to kind of see what's out there. I love my job. I love my supervisor. But, you know, you still want to see what's out there. And so one of the questions that was asked to me was, 
um, and I think this is the reason they didn't want to hire me too, is because they asked me, um, what will you do with the people that that don't want to that don't want to change that you can't get the buy-in from? And my response to them was, well, honestly, I have to ask you, what are you gonna do? Because so I'm here, I'm here to do the work and challenge them and push them. But what will you do when they don't change? Because I'm not given that power to do that. I'm here to create the, the processes, the structures for the change. And I'm going to push as hard as, you know, you let me do. So what are you going to do when that happens? And I saw everybody's face kind of change a little bit. I was like, oh, there you go, Angel. You went too far. <laughs> but I think that's the thing. We don't, they think that we can come into these places and just do it. If you are not giving the support and giving the power behind really, really making these changes and really, really getting rid of the people that have been harming folks for years and years and years, then you're you're creating a position that will fail. And that's the glass cliff. <laughs> and we'll go there next, but I want to make sure people heard before even starting internal, external work, asking leaders, I don't know, 10 what ifs and have them continue through someone consistently is causing harm. HR has talked to them. The leader's not willing. What are you willing to do? Because if you're not willing, because you went there, you said, who are you willing to let go of? And mm -hmm. so what's their level of resolve and what are they willing to do? Now, you and I both know that leaders say to us, oh yeah, 100%. And then we hit the resistance. So that's some other strategies that might be executive coaching and working with folk to find out so what's coming up and what's your hesitancy and how can we and what i find is particularly white leaders will go a, a mile and a half with their mm -hmm. white colleagues yeah but let's work with them and develop colleagues of color one yeah one two and that gets us also maybe to the glass cliff so could you first talk about what is the glass cliff and then we'll talk about how do you support folks doing EDI, racial social justice work? How do you support leaders who they're partnering with? Whew, so much good stuff still. <laughs> so the glass cliff is a new term, um, newer term. It's not very new, but um, I had never heard of it, but there was a um, professor at ISU, Dr. Carol Ray Beham. She's one of my favorite people. Um, we were kind of talking about just my interest in my research and the things that I was interested in looking at. And she said, well, have you ever heard of the term glass cliff? And I'm like, no, fill me in. And so I went and I started reading it. And it, it the, the theory itself, they focus on... Um, women in leadership roles, such as business executives and corporations, um, how they are put in these positions that are really not set up for success and how men are less likely to, to do that. Like they're typically put into these roles where they, where they are successful. And it looks at women and then folks of color. And so, um, and I would say folks from any, you know, minoritized identity, I think could be the situation. And so we bring folks into these very large places. We get one person, and we say, you're going to be the, the um, diversity officer. You're going to be the assistant to diversity. You're going to be this. You're going to be that. This one person. And then we give you a committee of volunteers, you know, folks that are adding this to the, their current workload who may not have been vetted or not. And they say, all right, we need you to change these things. We need you to make this work. We need you to go through every policy, everything that we have. But yet there is no support under them, one, to carry them because it's exhausting work. 
and to also carry them because you're going to have people that's about to resist you, even the people you thought was your friends, because they're like, now, wait a minute, why would you take this role? You know, it's not, you know, you know what you're going to have to do now. And so that you put these in, people in these places where you're really just doing it to say that you've done it, but you're really not putting money, staff, uh, a title, a lot of times title, um, pay, or a place on the website, you know, like a lot of times those things are not given to these people, but they're asked to change stuff. Um, one of the, the other positions that I had um, interviewed for was going to be responsible for DEI and then also employee retention. Mm. And I was like, hmm. And so I started doing some research and I found that one, they, they can't, they do not pay their people well. And two, they have terrible, terrible um, benefits. And then on top of that, you know, like it's just the structure system was just really jacked up. And, and it was a predominantly white leadership. And it also was a hard job. It was within like counseling and drug rehabilitation and all these things. And so I was like, this is one of those glass cliff positions because I can, and I can influence diversity, equity, inclusion. I can influence respect and honor to one another on this campus. I mean, on in this organization, because it wasn't a, a school. But I can't do nothing about the fact that you're not paying these people, but you're having them work their butts off. I can't do anything about the fact that um, the structure is the way that it is. Like, if you don't give me that power to do that. So that was one of those positions where a year or two from now, they would have easily been able to say, well, we hired Angel to do this. I don't know. She just missed the mark. She couldn't do it. She didn't change retention. And that would have been my fault as opposed to the structures and systems that they were refusing to look at and do anything about. They asked me about the budget I felt the job needed. And I told them and they looked at me like, whoa, 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 slow down. And it wasn't a big budget, but it's what it needs. And so that's where those glass cliff positions come in. And in my research, I want to look at that on a smaller scale, not just leadership positions, but these committees that we create. You create these committees, but you give them no power. You give them no honor, no respect, no leadership, but they're supposed to go and do something. You can't do that. Like that is literally, that is why people are exhausted. That's why people are tired. And that is why people are not jumping to do some of these things anymore because I already know that we're going to do low hanging fruit and never ever get to the stuff that's deep or at the top. And the cost, particularly for folks of minoritized identity, particularly for folk of color, particularly black, I think, who say, okay, one, I trust you one more time. The emotional cost, the physical cost, the racial trauma. Yep. Immediate re-triggers decades yep. We're in this national context where racialized trauma is getting re-triggered every day. White folk don't understand. And then when folk of color show up with passion, we say, oh, you're angry, you're militant, you don't fit here, you're unprofessional. Uh, and then white folks say, see, shouldn't have hired them anyway. Deficit, yeah. lowered our standards. So all those racist tropes I'm learning that word. Those uh -huh. white supremacist beliefs that whites are always smarter, better, white way is the best. We can then say, see, instead of looking at the systemic. So yeah, two thoughts. How can organizations that are listening to you go, we have created a glass cliff. What can we do now uh -huh. for particularly folk of color in these roles? But sometimes there's white women, white queer folk in there. Mm -hmm. And another thing I want to get to before I have to say goodbye is it was your idea. Leaders who are often white leaders who are partnering with folk in senior diversity roles. 
because I'm talking about in the line of supervision now, clear competencies that leaders change in their area. Diversity officers are thought partners, not the magic person to come in. So step one, what can folks do? We have a glass cliff. What can we do now, particularly to build structures so that we're not burning out and then the system continues because see, we did it. So what can we do? Mm -hmm. Well, I think really um, ask the person who they put in that position what they need and then actually try your best to give it to them. Um, I think that we get uh, a lot of times in some of these positions right now, they're hiring a lot of you know young, fresh out of um, college folks who really don't have a lot of experience behind them. And they're just so excited to get the job and to get the title and to get the money that they don't need. They really do walk into here thinking they can do everything that is going to be asked of them. And after you know a year or two, they tired. But I think that we really need to kind of break that down. But what do they need to be successful? Like as a leader in your department, even if you're not thinking about DEI, what is all under you that that helps you to be successful? Why would you think that this person wouldn't need that? Because when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, I tell folks it's got to stop being a piece of the work. It has to be what the work is being done through. And if everything that you're doing, including presidency, CEOs, if all of that has to be done through diversity, equity, and inclusion, then that means that is one of the most important people on your campus. And they need to have just as much support, money, staff, uh, opportunity as you have. And so it, you got to be willing to do that. And so when you're serious, some of these institutions you go to, they got departments that have 10 people, 10 staff members. Now, I'm not saying that they're all doing great work all the time, but to even have that many staff members dedicated to that work is a great start. Um, we got to stop thinking we can do it with one person um, and a, a volunteer committee for a place that, that serves over, you know, thousands and thousands of people. So I think that's probably one of the, one of the biggest things. Ask. Ask and then also think about what do you need to be successful? You need an assistant. You need someone who's checking your calendar. You need someone who's typing notes for your meetings. The DEI person needs that as well if you're putting them in a leadership role to do so. If you're going to have a committee where there's not this leadership role, but the committee is donating their time, then their resume should be able to show that they held a leadership role and they did some really hard systemic work that will benefit them if they ever choose to move on or move up into another position. There should be something they get to gain as opposed to just exhaustion and tiredness uh, being a part of these committees. Mentoring programs, we have those for employees. How come not mentoring for folks in EDI roles with executive coaches? Yes. I love your point. Everything that white senior, upper senior level managers have in their system as well as, quote, support. And that is a, that's going to blow up organizations. That's, mm -hmm. and it's, um, so one reason we started inclusion partner program at Illinois State that many people have done similar processes since was because to get in the line of supervision so that the manager, the leader was responsible and the EDI person that was in their department was a thought partner. Mm -hmm. So as we move to, towards closing, how about those leaders that are taking it seriously, that are stepping out a little farther ahead than their colleagues how do we support them so that they're not then, we don't saw off that limb? They actually are leaders and change agents for systemic change. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, that's, that's probably the stickiest place to be with because anybody that knows 
when they have gone through a process of changing the way that they think, or even, you know, this last year, I know a lot of people that talk to me and say, you know, I've lost friends, I've lost family. And so a lot of times folks in those positions, they lose their, their capital, they lose their white capital, they lose their white, um, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Capital and, and oh, I can't think of it right now, but they lose that. And that's, that's sad, you know, that they shouldn't have to lose their positions or their opportunities to move up because they are actually supporting the equity work that needs to be done. And I, and that's what I see a lot of. And so again, that has to come from the leadership, even over them, it has to be them supporting this and making sure that all the way down, we have structures in place that if the president isn't honoring it or the CEO isn't honoring this position, then there's something that has to, you know, there's something that has to be said. Like we have to have evaluations in place that kind of shows um, where we're missing the mark of support for these folks. And then um, people like that are typically going to be in circles where they have staff and folks that are, are holding them up. Um, but we got to stop being the ones that are, you know, making half the pay and half the everything, lifting up folks that are making double the pay to do the stuff that's important. Like, we need folks that are making just as much money with them sitting and standing with them. So I think that that has to do with our hiring practices. I think that that has to do with the questions that we're asking, um, where we're looking for people at um, these institutions that do a lot of in-house stuff that, you know, they're not seeking the, the care uh, or the expertise from anyone outside. That is always going to harm you because if you could do it by yourself, it would have been done already. And so we have to start, you know, there needs to be mentorship for leadership. There needs to be mentorship for them who are connected to other folks who are really, really doing anti-racist work on their, in their institutions and on their campuses. And, and we got to listen. You know, one of the things that I recognize working in a lot of places where a lot of the problems are is within the, um, the area where, where the lawyers and stuff are. Now, <laughs> the thing about that is we have folks who have the power to say, no, nope, you can't say that. You can't do that. You can't. And they themselves are not culturally competent and have no cultural humility. So are you telling me no, because I can't do it? Or are you telling me no, because you don't want me to do it? And when you have people in those type of powerful positions that can say no, and you really don't get to ask why, then that's where you are stunted. Like someone told me, a lawyer said I couldn't use the word um, identities once. And I'm like, if, if I can't use the word identities, then you clearly don't know what identities mean. And so that's the problem. You get to tell me no, though. And I don't really get to question because you have more power in this situation than I do. So institutions really need to think about the folks that they're putting into those positions as well. It can't just be a degree that gets them there. They really have to be able to also look through this anti-racist lens in order to truly help a person write a good statement, write a good article, make a good response to something, because that, is, that can hurt you so bad. So legal, general counsel, marketing, communications, HR, there are so many gatekeeper roles. Yeah. A new thought I just had, what you're saying is regional national organizations could hold for senior leaders a confidential space to share what they're doing, resistance, how to, because sometimes on our campuses and our organizations, the three or four white leaders with one or two leaders of color, it's not safe necessarily to come together, but if it might be. But how do we support those? Yeah. Final comment. I could talk to you for a long time, my friend. Thank you. Heard about a president that was just hired that literally wiped out all the senior diversity roles, all the task forces, everything. 
and said, it's everybody's job, therefore we're not going to have. And behind that was, um, we're destroying everything that was trying to create a racially inclusive, socially just organization. So it wasn't mm -hmm. just well-intended mistake. And mm -hmm. so what advice do you have and counsel for folks that are doing EDI work who have leaders that came in like 2016 here in the United States that just destroyed with an agenda to reassert whiteness, white supremacy strategies. Mm -hmm. How do you, until there's new leadership, what advice do you have? Because I'm hearing that from folk of color, particularly black folk over and over these days. I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the hardest when it's at the top, you know, it's so hard. And we, and we, we've seen that, you know, within our own experience, our own political uh, uh, areas, um, we've seen that when the top has a view, it can truly be pushed down onto anyone. And, you know, I don't think I've ever felt as helpless at times as I did these last few years um, when it comes to some of those things, because it's like, oh my goodness, you mean to tell me that we can just create a policy and, and right then and there it's over with? Like, I can't talk about uh, uh, critical race theory anymore because a, a document was done. And that is heartbreaking. So it really, really hurt. That makes almost all these positions, glass clips positions in a way. And so I, I tell folks to really, really just, sometimes you have to get back to your roots. You have to get back to the folks that are doing the work, um, that are just doing the work naturally. And, and you gotta build numbers. So to me, I don't walk in a room thinking that I can change everybody in that room, but I do walk in there with the goal that I'm going to, that I will get at least one or two to really, really come with me. And, you know, like my Jerry Maguire moment, come with me, who's coming with me. And if I get them, then they will then, you know, carry it on. I think that if we, if it's so much more of us than them, even if they're in leadership roles, we will make them so uncomfortable to where they don't want to be there anymore. And so if people can't grow, they got to go. And so for me, I, I just build my circles and keep building them bigger with the folks that are around me and, and fight like you got to fight. But of course, that's a risk, you know. Mm. Self-care, community care, prepare for the opportunities. And if they won't grow, they got to go. Yeah. Soon to be Dr. Angel Howard. I am so excited. Oh, owner of Necessary Change Consulting, working at Illinois State University. Thank you so much for sharing insights, recommendations, so much that so many people are relating to and get inspired by. And if folks want to talk to you about what could be next for them, how could you help them in the organization? Executive coaching, I'm just saying. How can people find you? Well, they, you know, they can definitely reach out to me. If you go to my website, unnecessarychange.com, there's a form that you can complete to let me know that you want to sit down and have a chat. Um, I love doing that. I'm, I'm also working with these two uh, men, Odell Bazell and Stan Pearson, like thebomb.com. They're speakers themselves, and they do some diversity work and leadership and organizational change work. But we have a, a, a program, it's called NAMCA, National Association of Masterminds and Co-Curriculum Advancement that we've been working on. And so we're trying to allow it to be a space where um, specifically higher ed folks can come in and get a lot of professional development, a lot of um, leadership and, and just how to do this work through a DEI and anti-racist lens and how to just grow within your institutions to influence the stuff that's going on. So that's something that's really big that I've been very proud of. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. 
Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.